0: the podcast for Cinementalist.com. My name's Andy, his name's Liam, you know the fucking drill by now, surely, (laughs) surely. Uh, How are you doing, Liam? You alright? I'm staying alert,
1: as our Prime Minister has told us to, yeah. Staying alert? Staying alert, as Bojo said, yeah, I'm just like, you know, when I'm out and about, just looking out for coronavirus, making sure it doesn't try and run up and punch me in the face, (laughs) (laughs) Staying
0: alert on these streets is uh, quite a good idea in general, really. It is. I think most people were staying alert already.
1: Well, you know, but you know, they're allegedly a bunch of complete nuts of fucking idiots, which is that's what he's saying, but not saying. So, <laughs> we've we've gone from stay at home and
0: don't go out to maybe go out, but not really. No, please don't. No, no don't. And no, do actually. No, go back to
1: work. No, don't. Yes, we've decided that the best progressive phase phase rather is to allow you one exercise a day, one form of exercise a day. To unlimited exercise. Unlimited right? exercise. Yeah. So you know. Slow, sensible, gradual phasing. It's, yeah.
0: So that means <laughs> if you're an exercise nut, mm. you're the only person allowed to be
1: out all the time, because you can just say, "I'm, I'm doing a twelve hour workout." What is there to stop you? I mean, how, how can they, you know, objectively prove you to be telling falsehoods? Because mm. you can as you say, you can just be. There are people who spend all day in the gym. You know, yeah. if they if they if they don't have to go to work to accrue their livelihood, then mm. they're a fitness nut. They can. They spend all day in the gym. There's plenty of people who do that, so it's feasible that somebody could just. Yeah, I, I love exercising all day. You, how can you can't prove yeah. it wrong? I'm, I'm training for a triathlon. I, yeah. I, need and the, do, I need to do an eight hour session. And those those are the newly established variations of the rules. Uh, yeah, it's just a uh, you know as it's a usual encouraging clusterfuck.
0: Yeah, absolutely,
1: <laughs> absolutely.
0: Uh, Yeah, but other than that, it's lovely and sunny in little old England this week. uh, We're able to enjoy a bit more of it, apparently, ostensibly, at this point.
1: Allegedly. Uh, Not really. (laughs) (laughs) It's really boils down to.
0: I thought I'd start out with a little bit of film news this week, as we have been doing recently, because I was reading the other day about, well, this this is an article that may make you happy. Uh, Christopher Nolan and Tenet. Yes, yes. Now, Chris Nolan is apparently absolutely desperate to keep the 17th of July release date that he originally had for Tenet. Uh, So much so that he wants it to be the first film shown once um, the lockdown is fully lifted, once the cinemas are back open. Right. He wants to do Tenet. Oh, and he's really pushing quite hard for it at the moment he really really wants that to be the one you go and say, this is the film that brings audiences back into the cinema as much as I appreciate his enthusiasm as much as I do want to see Tenet because I love Chris Nolan's stuff I think that might be a bit I don't know controversial at the very least because he's essentially saying look we're, we're going to stick with our July 17th whereas just about every government in the world is saying July probably but
1: maybe not yeah but you're going to so you're, you're pushing for it to be released in cinemas that probably aren't going to be open well, yeah, so unless unless you're doing it on a on a streaming service, well, he it's just
0: you can't do. It. He seems to be using his weight as a director to try and push that. Oh, like so, so you know, we must open by July
1: seventeenth. Otherwise, no one's going to see Tenant. Well, I'm sorry, mate, but the the heads of states in various nations are able to override your zeal. I'm sorry about that. but uh, Don't get me wrong, I love the enthusiasm. I think that's fantastic. But at the same time, yeah, putting people at risk by doing that yeah. may not be the best. I've been very excited about Tenet ever since seeing the trailer and gleaning the very vague bits and pieces I can from synopses that people have written and I'm glad that it's been extremely vague because it looks awesome. Um, I'm saying completely yeah. blind on it. Yeah, I literally know some incredibly vague outset details and I'm perfectly happy leaving it at that. And yes, the man, it looks as though the Nolan team have, as always, have worked extremely, extremely hard on it. However, I do not see how realistically his demand his objective is going to be met because if the government says no cinemas are not not allowed to open until best case scenario the end of 2020 then he's going to be demanding that odium screen a film where nobody's going to show up because they're not allowed to well it's a warner brothers
0: film as well warner brothers have announced that just about all of their other new releases will be 2021 Hmm. They're taking the real long game on it and go right, we'll shove everything back pretty much a year, which may be a bit of overkill, but you can certainly see the rationale and the logic behind it.
1: What is, Nolan, what is Nolan doing? Is he essentially aggressively demanding that cinemas reopen?
0: Well, I'll read you um, the CEO of IMAX, Richard Gelfond, said in a com- uh, company conference call, Chris really would like to be coming out with a film that opens theatres. I don't know anyone in America who is pushing harder than Chris Nolan to have the theatres open and to have his movie released in July when it's scheduled for. Yeah, I, I I appreciate the enthusiasm. He's known for being a workaholic, he's no, and that's why his films are so brilliant because he puts so much effort into it. And I certainly get the impetus. At the same time, I think that's I don't it's super risky, right? It's like I mean, if all the theaters are open by then, sure, go ahead, but it doesn't look like that by the current time no, frame it we're aware of. I
1: mean, the man as we you know, I I really like Chris Nolan. I think he's a great filmmaker and it looks as though Tennant is yet another example of him going balls to the wall, throwing everything he can at a movie to make it great, to make it visually stunning, to make it like consistently brilliant in every facet. He's worked very hard. I can understand that, you know, he wants this. He doesn't want it to all be for naught. But I don't think it would be for naught anyway, because everybody is in the same boat. Yeah, all, all filmmakers are in the same boat because nobody else is having their film screened in cinema or either. I so think it-
0: I think what this is. Uh, I mean, one of the things Chris Nolan is known for is his sheer technical knowledge of cinema. Yes, and he's a big proponent of the fact that films mm. are only properly expressed on the big silver screen rather than the small screen at home. Sure. And we can appreciate that. He's very, very clever with it. And he's very clever about how he uses um, digital stock, film stock and different types. And he uh, had you know, that great thing in Dunkirk with going between different aspect <coughs> ratios for different parts of the story. Like he's a real cinema buff down to the real technical detail. Absolutely. Yeah. Really known for that. And I guess he's looking at it going, well, films can only be properly experienced in the cinema, so he doesn't want people to watch it at home first. However, I mean, I'm a bit like that you know me with visual, visual quality. Mm. Like I'm the kind of person, if I play a video game, I want to have the hardware that means I can run it at, and I'm always a PC gamer, I always want to run it at like ultra quality, 4K definition, all that kind of stuff. I'm sort of with him on, you know, getting the best out of the experience. But at the same time, if you've got, as most people have at home, a decent 1080p or even 4K TV, the experience is pretty damn good. Mm. I mean, that's <clears> really, really good cause. Like a lot of people, especially people listening, I think are film fans. They've already got a screen at home that's pretty awesome. Yes, it's not an IMAX screen, but it's enough, surely. I think he's being particular about, because of his particular knowledge of the technical details, he really wants to push the maximum out of it. And I get that, but not at the expense of um, the national safety, I think. Yeah, it doesn't make it.
1: Any- I'm actually glad you mentioned your uh, zeal for visuals, because I remember when I was coming from movie night, Around your old abode, and you rang me and said, "Oh, I've got the 1080p rip of Wall Street, mm. even though it's not a film that even needs to be visually stunning because it doesn't have any totally f- legally acquired, <laughs> yeah. As, yeah, as it doesn't have any set pieces." But no, but that being said, it is always lovely for something to look crisp and appear to be jumping, jumping to life out at you. Yes, absolutely, totally get that. As you know, an essential oh, IMAX I'm, 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 I'm screens look fantastic. Absolutely,
0: they're, they're wonderful things, but. It's, but- you can get 90% of the experience on a very good TV at home. And I think big film fans and big film fans will be the ones interested in Tenet. Your home cinema system, even if it's just a, like a 32-inch, 200-quid TV from down there, the, the screens these days are pretty good. I think he's being a little bit picky about that one. And going, Why I is know, you he must pushing so hard? It's purity of vision, isn't it? But
1: purity of what? vision at the, at the expense of your audience's safety well, he, is worrying. What? What The favour that he could do himself, as I said, to, to reiterate with the greatest respect for the hard work he has put into the piece, the favour he could do himself is just imagining that every single cinema across the globe has burnt to the ground. Mm. Because for all intents and purposes, they more or less have. Yeah, yeah. They're not open. You're not allowed to open. You cannot risk more and more spikes, endless waves. It's just ridiculous. And it, it makes total sense
0: that, I mean, you know, I've, for a long time, I've made my, uh, my daily wage in the bar trade. And, it, you know, I'm out of work at the moment, and it's a bit of a struggle. But at the same time, you totally see the rationale behind it because <coughs> it's gatherings of large groups of people. and Gatherings of large groups of people is obviously the, the perfect place for terrible viruses to spread. Again, with cinemas as well. It's 500 people or more sitting in a room all closely packed in next to each other, breathing in each other's air, touching each other with because you can't. Yeah, you know, every time. How many times have you got up? You know, you've misjudged it. You've needed to go for a piss in the middle of a film. How many people do you end up, touching on your way out of the aisle? Yeah, this is it's really, a lot, isn't it?
1: Well, as you know, you mentioned that you, you know, you you bake your living from the bars, right? As you know, I work in the retail industry, mm. and I spend every day at work just on edge, essentially. I you want know, mm. to, you know, always surveying making sure that people around me are not coming too close.
0: Yeah. Obsessively
1: watching. I'm at work every day essentially stressed up to the eyeballs. Yeah. And as much as I want to see if the cinemas are open by July July 17th, I'm not going to be calmly carefree waltzing down to the cinema. I'm still going to be on edge for a considerable amount of time. And I imagine most other people are. And
0: social distancing is predicted to stay for a long while, probably at the very least the majority of the year. So the only way you could really reopen <clears the> cinema <throat> is by, I mean, what's two metres in terms of seats? Four seats, maybe, mm. between people? Perhaps more. Yeah. I'd say four seats is probably about two metres, near as, near as damn it. Certainly most of it, yeah. So basically cinemas will have to, even on their biggest releases, their <clears throat> entire revenue is going to drop by three quarters because you have to have three or four seats in between it's, it, I, I can sort of see them doing it, but I don't think that's a reason to push cinemas to open no. when you're going to get a quarter of I, the numbers that you, you were originally through the necessity it, of social distancing.
1: I, I, I completely and utterly sympathise and empathise. I, I, you know, I hate the fact that we have to social distance and that we're in lockdown. Yeah, I miss a lot of friends. I hate not being able to go to the cinema as it's something that I absolutely adore doing. But you know. The logic needs to override the wants on this one. Mm. And I I think that Christopher Nolan is a very intelligent man. He should know this.
0: (laughs) And pushing to streaming just seems so logical. Yes. We've covered it to death on the show. We're not going to go into it too deep again. But it makes so much sense. And the, the fact that people are ready for it, people are set up for it. Everyone's got a decent home broadband connection now. Everyone's got something decent to watch on, even if it's your laptop screen. You know, like there's laptop screens these days are getting better and better and better. I totally get that he wants you to see it in the best quality possible. But at the, the expense of uh, the safety of your cinema goers, I think is perhaps
1: ill-judged, should we say. I am fully prepared to eat my words because I am nothing of an odds maker. If this, by some miracle, the cinemas are again open by... The projected release date i have a strong feeling that there's not really going to be much of a turnout at all i don't know it's a, a, yeah i'm 50 50 on that maybe people who just don't give a fuck and people who are rabid fans of nolan and just cannot control their you know they're beside themselves if they don't get to see his latest feature if and when they can I would just be surprised. I don't know. I just have this weird intuitive hunch that a lot of people are going to be too on edge and too scared. I, I'm, I'm certainly, even when things open up again, I personally am going to be fairly nervy for a while. I don't know about yourself.
0: Yeah, oh, absolutely. But at the same time, I think that's the thing of how, like the whole staged rollout. You can't just throw it in the doors to everything again. Like if you throw, like say tomorrow, you throw it open in the doors to every pub in England and every bar in England, the place would go mental. Every bar, every pub will be packed out, which is exactly the sort of thing that gives you your second spike. And then we want us to get locked in again. I, I hate So they have to do this gradual rollout to prevent people from going, wait, everything's open. Let's go fucking mental. Let's go fucking mental. I know this is good, like,
1: this is going to sound mean spirited, but would, could you not say that then that's a litmus test for the majority, <laughs> no, the majority of the nation being complete and utter fucking idiots? Well, we knew that already. Well, I mean, but, you know, I mean, uh, people say it's you know it's a more of a you know a good natured thing to attempt to give people the benefit of the doubt. But if that were to happen, that would just confirm every misanthrope in the country correct. Yeah, <laughs> but, well, uh,
0: yeah, th- that's that's
1: a whole other argument. <laughs> uh, well, it, well, I mean, I know it's a whole other argument, but it ties in. Yeah,
0: so, no, so no, 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 In the sense that I think I think you're right, but perhaps misanthropy is. Uh, well, it's actually coming in useful these days, isn't it? <laughs> I have to say, other than not, and, I, to- and I wish it were not. I'd not- like to be proven wrong. Other than not going to my day job as, as I normally have, other than that, my life has remained very much the same. Because if I'm not out working and doing something, then it's occasionally going to the pub. I used to go to the pub a lot. Now I go to the pub occasionally, uh, and like shopping trips. Otherwise, I am a fucking hermit. So as
1: a result, this has this entire experience has been okay. You know, I'm running out of money. I'm with you on that. Yeah, that's – I mean, like I said, you know, I miss – I do miss a lot of my mates and other family members and that. But even prior to all of these events, I was never a social butterfly. I'm. Hmm. Um, you know, if, if, if I'm in a crowded place these. Predominantly composed of people that I don't know very well, I, I'm not comfortable at all. Yeah, I can't. I can't stand being in large, crowded places. Going out, be uh, you know, if you if you are an extrovert, more power to you. Can feel it. it's just totally alien to me. So it's funny. I've worked with crowds my entire life, and I fucking hate. Them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. I've worked
0: in you know, managing busy bars and stuff, and production, and live gigs, and live music, and that sort of stuff. That's where my background is. But I much prefer holding myself away in a studio
1: somewhere and doing something I'll make like this. Up there. You know, I, I like performing for crowds. I just don't like being in them. It's, I mean, it, this thing, and it's 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 genuinely not shyness. I can I can happily talk to people. It's just that um, I don't. It's really sheer mean spiritness. Yeah, I, I don't actually. I I hand on heart don't actually enjoy it very much. So yeah. That, yeah. that's just me. I know. I know
0: how this is going to work. Anyway, but yeah, I thought that was interesting. And Tenet is something I'm desperate to see. I think that's going to be the big. Oh, but, uh, the
1: that that has been the film I'm excited for. Like, don't get me wrong, I am desperate to see it, you know, but it, things are things are as they are. I seriously
0: think at this point it should be pushing towards uh, things like Amazon Prime and Netflix. I really, really do.
1: People are absolutely psyched for television. Like, like swaths, massive swaths globally of people are really amped for television. They want to see it and they will see it. It's just... Get your heads kind of a bit more level because this is dangerous shit you're dealing with here. Yeah, 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 but sure. you know, there we go. What are you gonna do? Anyway,
0: let's get on with the with the show and with the reviews. Which would you like to do first, mate? You've got a couple this week as usual.
1: Well, in terms of recent releases, I I watched Let's <laughs> get into the bottom of the bag. I, I I watched the 2020 remake of Valley Girl the yeah. other day. It's released on the eighth of May. Now I do genuinely like, I love, I'd say even, go a bit further, a well-done teen comedy. You know, I love the films of John Hughes. The apex of great teen comedies would obviously be The Breakfast Club. But I like stuff like Sixteen Candles, Pretty in Pink. Stuff like Savage Steve Holland's Better Off Dead. I love Fast Times at Ridgemont High. If those kind of films are done well, they are very funny and they can also capture a great sensitivity about your you know, what, what is often termed the best years of our lives, you know, going to school, your adolescence, growing, growing up, growing pains. Worst years of my life. Yeah, well, I didn't like them very much either. There were some aspects I liked of them, mm-hmm. you know, i.e. the less responsibility, but there's also, you know, it's a trade-off because while now I have more responsibility, I'm also able to do lots more things that I wasn't able to do when I was 14, 15, such as gets, you know, drunk to the point that I piss and shit my pants. <laughs> Hop on a train to Scotland without anybody telling me I can't fucking do it. You know, I can do what I like, but, you know, there's always other shit when I'm done. Anyway. Great um, insights into Liam's personal yes, life. Yes, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> I digress. But in 1983, there was a rather, you know, endearing kind of goofy little teen comedy called Valley Girl. And it was one of the breakthrough roles of Nicolas Cage when he was only 19 years old. And it's him and uh, Deborah Foreman, and Deborah Foreman essentially plays the titular Valley Girl, you know, like totally perpendicular, like gnarly, you know. That it's type. actually the name for the accent, <coughs> isn't it? A valley yeah.
0: girl, valley speak,
1: oh, yeah, oh, valley like yeah. girl, you know, yeah, val kind of val Valley girls and Val girls and Val dudes, and the original Valley Girl directed by Martha cool- Coolidge. It's it's a you know it's a nice film, loosely inspired by Romeo and Juliet. She's a Valley Girl. He's a punk. You know, she's rich. She, she's from the upper echelons of society. He comes from a bit of a broken home, and he's like had a little bit of a dysfunctional upbringing. But they find each other, and sparks fly, and they get together, and, you know, their respective friends don't like it, but fuck them because they love one another. blah. Blah, blah, blah. It's, you know, it's fun. It's nice. Well, they've, they've just done a remake of it following the exact same story, but this time around, it's a jukebox musical. I was just reading that. What so is that like Glee? Yes, me? yes. So yes, there a, are musical yeah. numbers. A jukebox musical is essentially when the cast are not singing original musical numbers; they're they're doing renditions of songs that already exist. And therefore, <clears throat> what you have in the 2020 remake of Valley Girl is the complete and utter, unmitigated butchering of new wave and pop and punk classics from the
0: 1980s. Except now it's all upbeat musical numbers, everybody dances, and yeah, all, all the original they, meaning of the song is yeah, lost. Yeah,
1: they do, um, they just, they slaughter a plethora of things. They they do it to um, Mickey by Tony Basil. Mm-hmm. They do it to Girls Just Wanna Have Fun by Cyndi Lauper. They do, I was really pissed off the fact they did it because I love them. Um, I love the track More Than This by Roxy Music. Yeah. And they, uh, I think that's a wonderful track, and they totally fucked that. They do it to Kids in America by Kim Wilde, which is another great song. They totally – honestly, all of the numbers in it, all of the musical renditions, I thought they were horrible. I don't – the vocals were just nasty. The instrumentation was not good. And they're not – bad I, karaoke, isn't it, really? Yeah, I, and I didn't find them to have organic placement in the film. There didn't seem to be a satisfying, smooth segue. Just There's bit, bit, bits of random, annoying dialogue. Not None of the humour lands whatsoever. the another one of those instances where I've just found it to be insufferable. It was, I just found it completely utterly horrible. You, you're doing yourself a favour. Just track down. If you haven't seen the original 1983 Valley Girl, just track down that one. It's not a fucking masterpiece. It won't blow your mind. But it's a fun little teen comedy, and it's a hell of a lot better than, than this remake. I don't see what the point was you know, the jukebox musical aspect as well. It's just taking songs. And a lot of them are really good, catchy tracks or big hits from the 1980s. And they just completely shit And right
0: oh, This is coming off the back of Glee's popularity, isn't it? Because I never got Glee. I tried to sit a through a few episodes of Glee and I just, I really, <clears throat> really didn't get it. But then it's not for me. It's not designed to get me. And I, I tried to <clears throat> go into it with no preconceptions as you always do, but I just... Not for me, no, it was butchering uh, great
1: tracks through really yeah. cheesy musical That's numbers. And one of the reasons I, I dislike Glee is because I'd say to people, and it, and yes, there is the fact that now I'm sort of unable to extricate it from the association with the Sopranos, but I love Don't Stop Believing. And I say that to people, they go, what, you mean that fucking Glee song? It's like, no, you prat, Journey. <laughs> the original, the Journey song from 1981, you Ugh. But but they completely ruined that that piece of music, I think. So
0: I was watching an episode of the Grand Tour the other day, which is uh, the Top Gear guys' their Amazon Prime show, uh, which I do enjoy. I, I do. Jeremy Clarkson is a very very controversial figure, but I do find him very very funny. Uh, but he was saying he was driving a car, and he was saying a, about it that it's essentially it was a muscle car. He's saying people like muscle cars, though. We all find them faintly ridiculous. We like them. It's a bit like when you're driving. And if you've got friends in the car and Journey's Don't Stop Believing comes on the stereo, you go, oh, this is what rubbish. And you try and find something else instead. If you're in the car by yourself though, and Journey Don't Stop Believing comes on, you turn it up and you sing at the top of your lungs.
1: Everyone secretly likes that song. But why is it? I think it's a great song. I'm not ashamed to say. It. Uh, yeah. What? I th- do, you, uh, do you not like it? No, no. no I'm, I'm with Jeremy
0: Clarkson on this. Is, is that I, I not? I ostensibly don't like <coughs> it. And but there's been moments in my life where that song's played and I have belted it out like a good. I'm not. It's, ash- it's a, For me,
1: it's a guilty pleasure. I'm not ashamed song. to say. It. I really like that track. I think it's great. Yeah. You know, ma- maybe, maybe that's me needing, you know, uh, Leech's commitment to an asylum. Who knows? No, but I, 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 I think. <laughs> not. Perhaps more confident with your guilty pleasures than no, that. Yeah, no, no, I, I absolutely love it. Yeah, but, but they, yeah, Glee absolutely ruined that. And all Valley Girl does is completely and utterly ruin all of these great tunes from the early, mid 1980s. And the original film was, as I said before, it's loosely inspired by Romeo and Juliet. As I've mentioned before in this podcast, I'm not one for giving away any plot spoilers, even for films that I detested. But all I will say was, as anyone who is not troglodytic in their lifestyle knows Romeo and Juliet ends on a very sad, depressing note. Well, Valley girl does not end on a very sad, depressing note. So I think you can probably extrapolate the events of the film just from that nugget. Is it a happy ever after? Yeah, you wouldn't think so, would you? (laughs) But yes, the, the, the musical covers are atrocious. The acting, uh, I'll tell you what, I won't be entirely unfair. Um, the, the punk, the, the, Randy, the lads that um, our Valley girl Julie falls in love with, was played by a young British actor named Josh Whitehouse, there were actually moments in the film where I thought his performance isn't actually that bad. Oh, yeah, and sorry, I completely, totally missed, but I totally forgot to um, mention that this, uh, the bulk of the film also takes place uh, as a flashback, because in, which is something that's, removed from the original narrative of the 1983 film as well. Basically, in the opening of 2020 Valley Girl, it's a young woman named Ruby who has just broken up with her boyfriend and she's very sad and teary and she gets picked up by her mother, Julie, played by Alicia Silverstone, who proceeds to then sit her daughter down and cheer her up by telling her about her adolescence as the Valley Girl. And then it goes into the principal narrative. I mean, I don't really understand. I think that, well, no, actually... The whole thing was essentially just engineered as a great big, the 1980s, what great fashion, what great music. It's a love lesson for the 1980s, but I just think it's just horribly, horribly executed.
0: I was just looking through the cast list and I've suddenly spotted that Logan Paul is in this film.
1: I mentioned this in my write-up, and just we'll get into that in a second. In my write-up, I actually said something that I think is a bit unfair because I said, when I watched this film, I couldn't help but thinking what was produced in the 80s, stay in the 80s, aesthetic walks and all, I didn't qualify that I meant with this film. Right. Because, <laughs> because as we've said, there's lots of great stuff that has 80s aesthetic stuff like Drive, stuff like Mandy. There's lots of well, great... It's big at the moment, the whole retro yeah, wave thing. And yeah, and I admittedly did not make... I didn't qualify that in my review, and I'm sorry that I did not do that because I think it's very important to qualify that. i meant just with this film, because this film attempts to execute that and it does it abysmally. And yes, Logan Paul is in it. Everybody's- How's his
0: performance? Very
1: annoying. (laughs) Is he really? Like the man himself, yeah. (laughs) The Paul brothers, I just, oh God, they are, I think think in my review of it on the blog, I trust, I say, you know, everybody's favourite insufferable cock, Logan Paul. Because that is what him and his brother Jake are. They're a pair of wankers. And I actually found out that this film was actually the production thing began it began and ended in 2018 but they kept pushing the release date back because of constant controversy surrounding logan paul because him he's a dick mm. him and his brother jake they're just a pair of dicks they're fucking really arrogant like bullying attention seeking on either dogs bollocks Oh, I just, oh, God. all the worst
0: of modern internet culture yeah I just
1: can't stand it yeah. you know? oh man yeah Logan Paul is in it and as you would expect he is a complete and utter fucking annoying cock his character Mickey is analogous to the you know, um, I think Tommy who's played by Michael Bowen in the original Valley Girl coincidentally Michael Bowen Guy who plays the original Valley Girl villain. He's the same actor who plays um Todd's Uncle Jack on Breaking Bad. You know the neo-Nazi guy. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's you know in the original Valley Girl, you think okay, well this character is a dick, but you're not consumed by hatred for Michael Bowen. Whereas I would put my hands up and say maybe there's a little bit of colouring there because I detest Logan Paul so much. I mean he does he does purposely play a cock and. He does well at playing a cock. Well cast. Well, yeah, because but because he is an actual cock. Then, I mean, I don't know. It's hard. It's it, you know, it's weird. It. I, I don't. There's something very jarring about it. It's like if they cast somebody like oh god, what would be a what would be an example? What would be a good a, a good sort of uh, analogy? analogy? Um, but if they, you know, if they did a an Ameri- a British equivalent of American History X and Edward Norton's character was played by somebody like fucking, you know, well, a younger Nick Griffin or yeah. Tommy Robinson. It just, it's a bit weird, isn't it? It's a bit, ca- it's a bit counter to the intended. <laughs> you know, I might, I might, maybe I have made a potentially libelous statement there, but I was sickened by it, and that's that. <laughs> but no, Valley Girl just, I, this is one to
0: avoid. I, yeah.
1: yeah, and as I said in the in the beginning. I like a well-done teen comedy. They can be really great. They can be poignant. They can be very funny. They can transport you to the better aspects of your youth. If they're well done, I I like them. But this is just something that really doggedly tries to capture the essence of the, you know, good times in the 80s. And it just falls flat on its face. So, yeah, no, sorry, thumbs down on that one.
0: All right, then. well, let's get on to other territory. This
1: is uh, Zodiac. Yes. Now, so this is presumably about the Zodiac killer. Yes, David Fincher's um, take on the tale from 2007.
0: So I don't know a lot. Of, I know some bits about some serial killers, but this is really your territory. Uh, the Zodiac killer, what was he? I I really am a bit
1: blind on this one. Well, from uh, December... 1968, throughout most of the following year, 1969, the Zodiac terrorised predominantly the city of San Francisco, but also other areas of California, such as Vallejo. And he killed five people, five confirmed murders. He brutally injured two people to the point of life-altering injuries. Um, But he claimed to have killed 37, and law enforcement actually they calculate his the his actual killings to be upwards of twenty and into the thirties. Um, he uh, murdered one girl in Valle. I think it was in Vallejo, or it might be- no, no. I think it may be Ventura County in nineteen sixty eight. But when the police started to really worry and say we've got a serial killer on our hands, is when two couples were attacked. One in uh, late December in december 1968 and i think the other one was in early 1969 and he would taunt the police with uh lots of cryptic messages And in one he addresses himself as the zodiac and he was essentially the scourge of california for only i mean only a year but he caused such devastation such moral panic like you know dirty harry yeah. It's directly inspired by the Zodiac case. All that stuff that's- Oh, yeah, I do remember reading that. Yeah, yeah. That, like, it's why Andy Robinson's character is named Scorpio and all that stuff We see him hijacking the boss. Zodiac threatened to do that. He, he, uh, they had a thing where they he called into a, a talk show to speak to a prominent lawyer at the time, uh, Martin Belly. And the guy was just seeking, as they theorized, he was just a, a complete and utter psychopath who was seeking his 15 minutes of fame. And he essentially attained it without revealing his actual identity. And there's been other, like, sort of very subpar films based on the case, but in 2007, David Fincher who famously directed Seven. That's probably his most well-known film. He did a take on it, principally focusing on three, three guys um, attached to the case. There was David Tosky, who's in the film, was played by Mark Ruffalo and was the direct inspiration for Dirty Harry Callahan. He was the main policeman working on the case. Uh, Robert Graysmith, played by Jake Gyllenhaal, who was a uh, cartoonist, did the sort of composite sketches that the 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 witnesses attested to the zodiac's appearance, and oh god damn it! What is Robert Downey Jr.'s character? Tim Avery, Tim Avery. That's right. Who was an investigator? I was going to
0: say the cast list on this is pretty <clears throat> impressive.
1: Jake oh, it's great. Yeah, Mark yeah. Ruffalo, Robert Downey Jr., uh, Brian Cox. Yeah, yeah. Brian Cox. He plays, <laughs> he plays Martin Belly He plays the lawyer because it because it, it, it's a true instance where the zodi they they um the zodiac said that he wanted to speak to Martin Belli specifically. So they got him on a talk show and requested that the general public do not phone in. So if the Zodiac were, was going to call, he would have an uninterrupted line to do so. And they dramatised it in the film. Uh, it's just such a great execution of... Because it's based entirely on case files. And it's just... It's part police procedural. It's part, you know, serial killer monster movie. You see several of the killings dramatised and it's it's incredibly unsettling, but it's accurate, to you know, to the best of its ability, to the you know, actual files that the police drew up on the case. And I just think it is, was that all across the board? It's comprehensively, it's really well acted. It's really well paced. It, there's a lot of morbid humour in it. One of those films that, you know, it's it, do, it does... What's the best kind of horror does? Even though it's not a horror film, that wave of psychological disturbance it just primarily unsettles you, and it is extremely believable. And yeah, as I say, all, every single performance is resoundingly great, and it's just a it's just a really really satisfying true crime movie. It's one of the best true crime movies I've ever seen, without any shadow of a doubt.
0: I was just reading here in 2016; it was voted 12th among 100 films considered the best of the 21st century by 117 film critics from around the world. Yeah,
1: it's, it, honestly, if, I mean, if you haven't, seen, I should if, really if, check this out. If yeah, anyone, like, if, is, honestly, really if you've not if me if, you, by. if you've not seen Zodiac, it is superb. It's so well structured. I, I honestly, I cannot think of. I'd like to be objective in any analysis. I cannot think of one thing about the Zodiac that I didn't like. Every single thing from the performances to the, the soundtrack is fantastic. Got the, um, like I say, like the film, because of the film, like you know, the, uh, the theme song of the Zodiac Killer, if you like, has become Hurdy Gurdy Man by Donovan. All right, right. Great yeah, song. Yeah, really great. And it, yeah, that's the thing. It's got a smashing soundtrack. It's, it, the cinematography is brilliant. The, the way that it's scripted, the, every, the pace is wonderful. It's just a really, really, it, it's just satisfying in, in its execution. It's just so tightly put together and everything about it is just brilliant. and, it may, it, you know, the, the kind of interchange, the acerbic interchange between the principal three characters, David Toskey, Robert Graysmith and Tim Avery, but predominantly between Avery and Graysmith as played by Jake Hole and Robert Danny Jr. It, there's moments of it that are funny because they have got like, these barbed exchanges, but there's also a begrudging respect there because all of them obsessively want to get this guy. He stopped killing in 1969, so that's 51 years ago. But as he's dramatised in Zodiac, Graysmith was obsessively investigating the case up until 1991, so 22 years later, his life was just cons- consumed by nailing this bastard. Because, as I said, well, I mean, I was about to say he only killed five people. One is too many. <laughs> but just the, but just the. By serial killer standards, it's a relatively low number. I yes, suppose. it is. But it was just the, the sadism of his crimes and the fact that he taunted every echelon of law enforcement. Nobody really experienced anything like that before. And he just had the entire... I I was going to say this, the entire city of San Francisco. I think he probably had the entire state of California just in, a, in utter mental, emotional disarray. Because nobody knows who this guy is. Nobody knows you know he doesn't he doesn't have an mo he shot some victims he stabbed some victims he seemed to kill indiscriminately so nobody knew if they were going to be next and i'd imagine you know attempting to visualize being a resident of california at that time it would have been utterly fucking petrifying and the film captures that splendidly i think
0: Right then, that brings me on to TV of the week. And this is one that I've been putting off for a while. Uh, eagle-eyed listeners or eagle-eared listeners would know that over the past few weeks, I've been, I've been doing some um, really good stuff. I'd like to think so anyway. But there's something I've been catching up with and there's something that I wanted to think about a bit longer before I reviewed it. Uh, this is Devs, which has been getting a hell of a lot of hype. Devs is a science fiction thriller. It's a mini miniseries uh, written and directed by Alex Garland and it's on the FX channel in the US, but it's actually also on BBC at the moment if you're a UK listener. Uh, it's actually all up on iPlayer at the moment, which is a rare thing for a sort of a big American TV show to be getting such uh, promotion to be played so uh, publicly in the UK without you having to go and search for it. This is basically about... <laughs> okay, let me give a caveat before my review. I've read a lot of other reviews of devs, and to my mind, they've gone too far into the plot, because devs is something that I think you as an audience need to discover for yourself. It is basically a big uh, lead-along mystery, where you follow, it's basically a what's inside the box kind of thing. So I'm going to give the bare minimum of plot setup on that. Now, if you want more plot setup, there's a million reviews out there that will give you more. What I would say is don't. Mm go into it as blind as you can, and I'm going to try and do my damnedest to give you a, a summation of devs. I'm going to get a bit, a bit esoteric with it and talk about it in more general terms because I don't want to give away too much. Even the first episode of devs, there's stuff that I can't tell you because it sets up the plot so massively. So let me give you the real basics. This is based around, um, it's centered around Lily Chan. Uh, who's a computer engineer who works for a a Silicon Valley tech company called Amaya. And Amaya is run by a man called Forrest, who's played by Nick Offerman. Now, she works in encryption for this tech company. Her boyfriend, Sergey, uh, is working on uh, more esoteric things. He's sort of part of their development lab, but crucially not part of Devs himself. Now, her boyfriend has a meeting with Forrest, played by Nick Offerman. He essentially has put together with his team a, an algorithm that predicts the movements of a nematode. So nematodes are very tiny organisms. Uh, they're sort of snake-like in shape, and they move supposedly randomly uh, when you view them underneath a the microscope. He's put together an algorithm that predicts what movements this organism is going to make. Forrest is very impressed by Sergey, and says, I think you're ready to join our devs team. Now, the devs team is based in a bunker secret laboratory out in the woods on their huge um, Tech Valley site. And he takes Sergey in. Sergey is introduced to this laboratory that is beyond every laboratory you've ever seen in your life. It's this huge bunker. and Within the bunker is a suspended room that's held up by electromagnetic fields in order to give it a barrier between itself and the rest of the world. It's literally floating in the middle of this lab. You can get to it by a lift that is also magnetically floated. So this lab never even touches the outside world. That's how secret and high-tech this thing they're developing is. He takes Sergey in, he sits him down at the desk and says, look, I'm not going to explain anything to you. I'm just going to, this computer here and every computer inside this lab has access to every single bit of code we're working on. So you have complete and utter access. I'm not going to explain to you what it is. Take your time read over what we've got and you and I'm confident that in the end you'll get it okay but it's sort of beyond explanation so just look at it so Sergei sits and he reads from the computer screen and what he reads essentially sends him into an existential crisis he starts sweating his mind starts churning he has to run to the bathroom and throw up whatever is on this screen is absolutely destroying him internally cut back to lily his girlfriend she knows that he's been taken into the Devs program. She knows the dev, Devs program is extremely secretive. No one knows what's going on inside that building. Uh, and he's late back. So she's at first, she doesn't worry too much. Okay, well, you know, he's obviously there and uh, and totally involved in all these amazing things that he's being shown. Night goes through. She ends up, she calls some friends saying, you know, he hasn't come back yet. They all say the same thing. Well, he's in Devs, you know, it's a fascinating way. He's probably completely lost track of time. They're in a bunker. That's all anybody knows about Devs. It's just this bunker on site. He'll be back at some point. She wakes up the next morning and he's still not there. He has disappeared. So Lily's job now, her point in the story, is to try and find out what the hell happens to her boyfriend. Now, this is probably the point where I should point out that during this review, and I've thought about this very, very deeply, uh, I'm going to throw you the odd red herring very deliberately because I'm so careful with this. If I say too much, you're going to start working on the point And if you get to the point before you see the show, you will have ruined it for yourself. So this is the point where I now need to go a bit esoteric. So Lily's boyfriend is missing. He went to work on this mysterious devs team. That devs team is run by Forrest. What they're working on inside the lab is the big hook of devs. And it's something I cannot spoil. What I will say is that it's so high concept that it's on the fringes of what human beings currently understand and comprehend. To so the more scientifically minded amongst our audience, you may have already guessed, even from me saying that, where this is going in terms of um, scientific developments and what's sort of the real fringe of our current level of science. It's something that I'm very interested in. I can't do the math for it. I don't have the brain. <coughs> but it's something I'm very interested in conceptually and I've read a lot about. Devs is scary. Devs has got an underlying feel of sheer dread, panic and terror running through it a lot of which is to do with the soundtrack it's the soundtrack is flat out horror real so we're talking scraping strings and metal banging in the distance oh so it's
1: like that sort of um shit scary sort of ambience the soundtrack is terrifying
0: actually It, it reaches peaks within very flat surreal like moments where not a lot's going on in screen but the soundtrack is ramping up and ramping up and thereby ramping up the tension. This is basically a series about, as near as damn it, uh, existential dread. And it tries to make you feel that existential dread at every single turn. We're a big fan, well, big fans of um, Valhalla Rising.
1: Oh, hell yeah. yeah!
0: One of the things about Valhalla Rising is that it's very surreal. It's very stretched out. It uses um, big color palette shifts and changes, and it's got a very tense soundtrack. Devs is doing quite literally that. Pew. Yeah, in a TV series, which I was very, very impressed by. Devs is flat out scary at points. It is so tense. But it's it's deeper than your average tension because it's that, like I said, that existential deep dread, that feeling that something isn't right, that something is entirely off. So, again, I'm not going to go too far into the plot on this because I even the first episode, if you're not sure whether you like devs or not, give the first episode a go because it is a stunner. So much happens in the first episode that if you're not intrigued by it, then you won't be intrigued by the rest of the thing. In fact, I can't see how anybody could watch the first series, the first episode of Devs and not get intrigued, not have that massive rush of being pulled towards it. Let me talk about Nick Offerman for a minute, because I, like most other people, was first introduced to Nick Offerman by Parks and Recreation. Mm-hmm. As uh, Ron Swanson, Swanson <laughs> who pretty much ate the show, he was so damn—he's the best thing about it. This yeah. is one of my favorite <clears> things <throat> to point out about Parks and Rec. Actually, is that Parks and Rec, actually, a lot of the show isn't that funny, but Ron Swanson as a character, Nick Offerman's <laughs> performance is the thing that holds Parks and Rec together. He's so good at doing this taciturn, um, deeply masculine, macho figure. Like he's—he's he's so wonderful. At the and telling me this, this devs. Nick Offerman gives the performance. It's honestly one of the greatest performances I've ever seen an actor do. I'm I'm holding my hands up, and I know when I really like something, I have a tendency to ramble about it and to really big it up and to... No, I'm serious. Nick Offerman's performance in this is Oscar-worthy. Well, Emmy-worthy, because we're talking about TV. But if this was a film performance, he would be up for the fucking Oscar. Forrest is such a complicated character. Again, I can't give too much away, but there are moments when you'll love him, there are moments when you'll hate him. There are moments when you will feel absolutely devastated by what has happened and what happens to this man. And Nick Offerman manages to do this through sheer stoic magnetism. When we talk about actors having it, Nick Offerman has got it in spades. It really reminded me, actually, of uh, Roger Ebert reviewed a film with Rain Wilson in it. I remember the review very clearly. Ray Wilson, uh, for those that can't place him, played Dwight in the US version of The Office. Mm. Uh, really, really great performance in that. Really, really funny. But This, this was an entirely different film. Roger Ebert said about Ray Wilson. He's one of those actors that does the rarest of things. I'm paraphrasing. He is, does the rarest of things. He is able to compel the audience and tell the audience something just by looking at an object. Just the way he would, is able to look at something Gives you everything you need to know. It's all uh, without saying. It's all without dialogue. It's all. So, Forrest very obviously has dialogue. It's Nick Offerman's ability to emote silently. His eyes are so painful at points. There is a very shocking moment in Devs, a really genuinely shocking moment where Forrest has an on screen breakdown. And it is so recognizably painful that it actually shocked me. It really got to me the way he portrayed it. It, it was, it's kind of like seeing Ron Swanson going through the worst day of his life. Hmm. You know what I mean? But it actually, it, it, I felt my, you know, when someone does something so guttural and so from the heart that your heart kind of leaps for them, you kind of get pulled towards and go, oh no, oh God. Yeah. Nick Offerman does that. He is, this is just the performance of his life. I've always said Nick Offerman is a great actor. I thought he was fantastic in The Founder as well, but he's never really found that role yet that really shows the full breadth of his ability. This is that role. He's just absolutely magnetic. Uh, Like I said, lovable, uh, hateable, terrifying, childlike at points. He's this um, tech guru that is, he's chased a rabbit hole so deep uh, for a very emotional reason that he's uh, not necessarily losing his mind, but he is being strung through the ringer of human emotion. Mm. And my God, what a performance! So, if you're not even interested in any of the setup that I've done so far, and I don't know why you <clears> wouldn't be, because I've this is so such an enticing show. But Nick Offerman's performance is magnetic beyond belief.
1: Well, but you you actually, I mean, because I had heard of Devs, weirdly enough. I mean, a few months ago, I came across the article in Empire, and I gave it a cursory read. I thought to myself that that actually sounds pretty damn interesting, and then I forgot about it. But you mentioning Alex Garland was the hook for me because I mean, I absolutely adore Ex Machina. Mm. I think that's a fantastic film with Oscar Isaacs and uh, Dominal Gleason. And that is another thing that it sounds like, you know, Devs is, you know, has some very weighty themes, asks some very intellectual questions.
0: Ex Machina is the obvious comparison with this for many, many reasons. As you said, same fucking director for a start. Uh, it's got a lot of that in it. A lot of the things you like about Ex Machina are there in it. But I was, I was working on this earlier. I was trying to do a thing where it's, you know, when uh, critics go, oh, it's like this meets this meets this. Yes. Okay, try this with Devs. This is 2001 meets
1: The Seventh Seal by Way of the Shining. Okay, I'm going to watch this ASAP. <laughs> in-
0: Ingmar Berman, that um, existential playing with the camera, freaky shots out of nowhere, utter surrealism. But the great thing is all of those things fit with what they're working on inside devs, which is the thing I cannot tell you. This is a mystery box. And each time you open a layer of the mystery box, I mean, it sets out a lot of things that I'm not telling you now in the first episode, but you need to follow the thread and follow the tab because each time the puzzle box gets deeper and deeper and deeper. And then you start thinking about like the uh, the ways, all, all the implications of what they're working on the ways that would change society. And this is what they're really concerned about. This is why they're so locked away. Because what they're working on is, if it works, changes the entire way humanity perceives themselves. It's utterly mind-expanding. And it's a show that takes no prisoners in terms of it expects its audience to be intelligent. It doesn't baby you at any point. So it gives you good explanations for the concept it's playing with. But it is not relying on the audience yeah, well, we had to make this easy for...
1: gives is not for divs. Yay! <laughs> hey, there you go. Damn it. That's too good. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Sorry. <laughs> there's, all, there's other stuff going on. So basically, within this huge high-concept setup, there are traditional narratives. There is the, um, the hurt girl looking for her missing boyfriend. There are... Uh, and her reconnection with her ex. In the, so she basically um, sort of hires her ex, almost, because he's a good coder as well. To try and figure out what happened, there's a lot of Breaking Bad in it as well. In the sense that Breaking Bad had moments that came out of nowhere that were utterly shocking and completely compelled you to watch the next episode. A big part of this is Zach Grenier, right? So this guy is just again, Nick offman is the best performance of the thing. Zach Grenier is up there because he's uh, if he's struggling to place and he was on Deadwood. Um, he's been, uh, he was Edward Norton's boss in Fight Club. Uh, he was in Twister. You'll definitely recognize his face. He is Forrest's right-hand man for the tech company. He's also, he's the, um, head of security for the campus. Ex-CIA and pretty much the darkest character I think I've seen in any modern media. He is terrifying. He's so still in the way he thinks and the way he moves, his eyes are totally and utterly dead. And there are moments within devs where he just goes beyond the pale. He is the kind of guy, if he knocked on your door at night and you opened your door, you'd slam it shut immediately because he's coming for you. He is absolutely fucking terrifying. I can't, who is he in Deadwood again? He's the guy that brings um, smallpox to the town. Oh, the him. Guy, the guy that turns up coughing.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just a
0: really, really terrifying performance. Reminded me a lot of uh, Mike from Breaking Bad. Mike Trout. Yeah, yeah. Mike Mike Trout though, is actually very
1: likeable and very lovable. Imagine Mike with all the lovability taken away. I mean, he's a he's pretty fucking intimidating guy as he mm. is. So, I mean, the fact that he's likeable is, you know, if he wasn't likeable, then he'd be... Probably one of the most hateable characters.
0: I'm telling you, he is his performance and his character. He is absolutely terrifying. And in amongst all this existentialist dread and the screeching horror movie soundtrack and all these big concepts that it's playing with, you're trying to figure out, so what does that mean? And where does that go? And all that kind of stuff. He is this. Every time he turns up on screen, you kind of go, oh no.
1: So he's definitely, definitely someone you don't want to fuck with. The last person, yeah. Uh, As
0: as TV right hand hard men go I think he is the pinnacle I really really do the pinnacle yeah fuck it man. I have not seen a scarier version of that than what he is he is able to put across man, do you know, the way- there's something so believable <laughs> about it there's something really
1: believable about it the way you're selling this I'm going to start watching this when me and you wrap up <laughs> yeah no dude I, would,
0: I would say anybody sitting out there going well I don't feel like I know enough about it please 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 don't go and read the other reviews because I've read them and they give away too much and believe me I know it sounds like I've not done enough on this. There's a very good reason why I haven't done enough on this because I really enjoy taking apart the mystery and I want the audience to enjoy taking apart the mystery as well. What I will say is that it is just a magnificent piece of modern cinematic television. It's, it's shot right up there in my estimations. I watch a lot of good stuff. There's some tremendous stuff out there at the moment. Nothing's got me quite as much as devs. Like, it's a mini series, isn't it? Yeah, so only eight episodes.
1: Only eight episodes, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. So it's yeah, nice and compact. Not that there's anything wrong with, you know, an extended series. But when something when something is a mini series and it gets it completely on point. Mm. That's just one of those rarefiedly satisfying things, yeah. you know.
0: It's got so much going for it, this it's super high concept. It's got Nick Offerman again, somebody that I've always admired. This is the performance of his lifetime. If anybody had any doubt about the ability of Nick Offerman, or you've sort of written him off as a comedy character or whatever. Watch him in this and tell me he doesn't make you want to fucking cry.
1: I was in, uh, you know, that's the thing. I mean, I love Offerman as Ron Swanson and I'm congruent with you in, on his performance in The Founder as well. But when I you know, was aware that Nick Offerman was in, a, you know, a serious science fiction series, I was nothing but intrigued. Just thinking to myself, like, I wonder what he does in here, it. He's you know?
0: so magnetic. He's able to do, So I know I'm always banging on about eyes as well, but good actors act with their eyes. and. There are shots, this. he does that Valhalla Rising thing of occasionally showing you a freeze frame of his face. Well, not a freeze frame, like a short clip. And the amount of pain and introspective suffering he's able to put into his eyes. And also, as well, here's a nice thing. There are tiny, tiny little drops of humour in it. So, so tiny and so occasional that you almost miss them. But each tiny drop that's in there works. It very rarely does a gag, except when it does that gag, it suddenly breaks the mood and it breaks the tension, which is just really clever writing. It's like, have you ever eaten something where you <clears> eat it and you go, oh, that's nice, that's lovely. And then when you finish eating it, about five seconds after you finish your mouthful, another flavour suddenly goes ding, like in the background. Yeah. Like a little bit of lemon or something in the background. That's the humour in depth. It's so rare and so occasional, that when it occasionally turns up, you go, oh, thank fuck for that, that's brilliant. Like there's just this occasional drop of relief That
1: happens. I'm always frustrated that I cannot place the originator of the quote, but I totally agree with um, that statement. That any piece of work that has any cinematic piece of work that has no levity in it whatsoever, that's not good. Because even you mentioning Imar Bergman earlier, man whose films are demarcated by superb takes on very intellectual existentialist themes. His films are chock full of humor, very dry humor, very, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing slapstick about them, but there's still moments of Mm. splendid mirth because that does reflect reality. No matter how, you know, austerely you're trying to tackle very serious themes. Concepts need to be taken seriously. People, even in the most dire situations, they do laugh. Mm. They do find upbeat uh, respite in certain things. Honestly, G-
0: Ingmar Bergman is uh, uh, for me, at least, watching it as a as a critic and as a fan is like he's like the poster child for this. He's like there's Ingmar Bergman references running through it. It's so surreal at points. In that very deep, what the hell do they mean by that? Kind of way and but everything's deliberate. It, I mean what I will say is it's a point's quite slow. And I don't mind that at all. Oh, I, know, I love a slow burn. I know a lot of people are turned off by slow. What I will say if you're watching it and you're going, this is getting a bit slow in points, don't worry, it does pay off. It's it's slow for a reason. It's not slow as a mistake, it's slow because it's being deliberate in what it's doing. It's setting up concepts in your mind that it's going to ratify later on. So if you're watching it and you're going, oh, it's a bit slow and I'm starting to lose interest. Which I don't think people will lose interest, but if you're that kind of person that needs a bit more adrenaline coming from the screen, don't worry, the adrenaline is there. It just needs to set up its points at certain bits. It's so clever, this show. It's like it's dealing with the highest concepts that the human mind is aware of. Has it gone right into your favourites? Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm utterly compelled by it. It's every single performance in it is fantastic. I've highlighted Nick Offerman. I've highlighted uh, Zach Grenier. But every single performance is superb. It's so beautifully judged in just about every aspect of itself. It is shocking in the same way Breaking Bad is shocking. And occasionally something will just happen out of nowhere. And you go, oh my God. The other way Breaking Bad had that thing of occasionally something will crash onto the screen. I
1: remember when well, um, those two guys are hunting down Jesse and Walter kills them with his uh, people carrier on Right? Yeah, 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 exactly. And that was and like that was right. of was like yeah. fuck, you know. That like, yeah. has <laughs>
0: got a lot of that in it. Uh, but it, it's way deeper than that. Like I said, some horrible things happened to um, Forrest during the course of this show, well um, through flashback, etc. And his pain is so real. It actually gave me a genuine emotional funk. There's a point where he starts screaming and it's probably the most realistic, painful scream I've ever seen an actor do. It's so, you know, when a friend of yours is going through real emotional trauma and stress and they start making noises yeah. that you wouldn't be able to make that noise if you tried, they're guttural. He's able to do that in devs and it's really genuinely painful. It, I just I'm blown away by just about every single aspect of it. This, please, please,
1: please watch it. This sounds like uh, mm-hmm. utter brilliance to me. So
0: I uh, so I've been taking my time with this review, thinking about how the hell do I do it? Because like I said, I've, I've read other reviews and they spoil it too much. I want the audience to find it the same way Why I found it.
1: Fucking, oh
0: god, I can never abide by all even the Wiki, that- even the Wikipedia page. and The Wikipedia page is totally accurate, but in the tiny little summation, even before it gets into the plot section. And the little
1: tiny summation, it says too much about what they're playing with inside the Just you, met, um, you mentioned Ebert, who is a man that I have great respect for. Really love Roger Ebert. But there have been some of his reviews where I, was, I would read them and he would give away things he should not give away. And the thing that always sprung to mind for me was, I think there was one episode of just Catch a Predator where Chris Hansen looked at a guy and said, what are you doing? <laughs> what is going on in your mind? You know, <laughs> yeah. and it was just one of those. That's like stop spoiling things. <laughs> like, this is
0: difficult. This one because we are always playing the spoiler battle and how much you give away and how much do you not. In this, I really don't want to give away a damn thing. Other than they're working on something mind blowing, and every single aspect of devs is beautifully well thought out, beautifully done, weaving traditional narratives in amongst a very, very high concept existential horror and dread. Like I said, when Sergey gets in front of what they're working on and he starts reading into it. The, the show actually doesn't give away what he's seen, but it actually brings him out in a cold sweat. And he's—you he can watch his entire world start tumbling around, around him. And he has to go and throw up because what they're working on, the implications of it uh, would change the entirety of humanity forever and the way we perceive the universe forever. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I absolutely adore this show and I'm imploring our audience. If the only thing you know about devs is that it's a TV show and the things that I've said to you, stop right here, go and watch it. Like I said, the first episode will give you a good clue as to whether you think it's worth your time or not. But I can't see anybody seeing the first episode really and not being super intrigued by where this is going to go. And it pays off. I'm tracking that right down. Yeah, mate. Hard on that. <laughs> really hard one to do. Okay, let's get into our trivia then, because we have to wrap up for this week. I thought we'd do well. You <laughs> know, again, I was stuck in my uh, trivia prison. Of well, do I do trivia about Valley Girls? No, not really. Um, <laughs> do I do trivia about devs? Well, I can't say anything about it. So I guess we're going serial killers.
1: It's good. It's a good uh, Frank Zappa song, uh, Valley Girl.
0: Oh yeah, I could have done Frank
1: Zappa. You yeah, go. good Frank Zappa song, but that's that's about the only thing you could say about Valley Girl.
0: Good fun, light-hearted serial killer killer trivia. Mm. Nom, 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 nom. It's harder to say than it initially sounds. (laughs) It's harder to do as well, believe me. (laughs) Uh, Let's talk about uh, Pee Wee Gaskins then.
1: I know Pee Wee Gaskins.
0: Yeah, so the uh, most prolific serial killer in South Carolina, apparently. Uh, He used to drive around in a hearse with a bumper sticker that read, I haul dead people. Uh, he told people that he needed it to take the bodies of the people he killed to his private cemetery. Uh, he claimed to have killed between 100 and 110 people, although nobody's quite sure what his exact total was. But, yeah, they're literally driving around in a hearse with eye-haul dead people on the back of it.
1: See, there's hiding in plain sight. And then that, <laughs> yeah. Right? yeah. Jesus.
0: Yeah. Uh, when police eventually came to the house of Ed Gain, as it gain or gain? Ed Gein? Ed Geen They found an absolute pigsty. Geen had been living alone since the death of his brother in a barn fire and let much of the house go into disrepair. They found countless body parts from his various grave digging excursions, including a bag of wilted vaginas and, of course, the infamous skin lampshade and half-finished woman's suit made of human skin. There were maggots living in old dishes in the kitchen. All except one room, his mother's room upstairs, remained pristine, except for dust that had collected and was untouched from the time of her death years earlier. He had such a fear or respect for his mother that he was afraid to set foot in her room long after she died. Apparently he used to um, hear her voice criticising him, which is, of course, uh, where Norman Bates' mother in Psycho comes from. Well, the
1: craziest thing about Ed Gein is that even though he's one of the most notorious murderers in American history, he only killed two people.
0: Yeah, although there's speculation as to more. Well, he's like... the, the like you can, say, he's a brother in the barn fire. The, well, specula- the, cons- the speculation is that
1: he killed his the brother, the speculation, brother uh, but, uh, I mean, as, uh, as to my knowledge, unless somebody, fair enough, shoot me down the phones, but as far as I'm aware, he killed two people, and other than that, he was a prolific ghoul. Yeah, gravedigging. Yeah, he was robbed Graves, yeah. and that's where the you know the belts made out of human nipples and the uh, armchair covering human skin and all that came from. But as far as I'm aware, he was a murderer, but it was two people. Yeah, but my, a lot of people seem to think that it was, you know, upwards of, you know, any decimal points because of how grisly his abode was. But yeah, I mean, still, as I said, one person is too many.
0: So. <laughs> oh, here's a little thing. I'm totally in your wheelhouse at the moment because you love serial killer stories and all that sort of stuff.
1: I'm one of those I'm, I'm, fucks. I'm reading you facts that you probably know I'm just really in, intrigued by people who
0: are, uh, and the apex of antisocial. Well tying this in, actually. Your favourite film, I believe, is Taxi Driver. Or yes, at, least, Taxi- at least one of your favourites of you your you You've seen my top five without a shadow of a doubt. This is something I didn't know and you probably do. Travis Bickle makes an offhand comment when leaving a diner that he had a cup of coffee and a slice of apple pie with cheese on top. Uh, this is based on a guy's um, where he was when he was captured. They tried to interrogate him, obviously, to get more facts out of him. And in exchange for details about what he'd done, he requested an apple pie with cheese on top. A nice little nod from the film there.
1: That's cool. It um, sounds pretty minion to me, but fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> I remember when
0: I first watched the film many, many moons ago, an apple pie with cheese on top sounded weird. I mean... And, and yet I'm, I'd kind of be up for it. I, I don't mean, know. I'd give it a go.
1: I like apple pie and I like various types of cheese, but a combination does not my mouth water make.
0: <laughs> okay. What about a uh, Brazilian serial killer, Little Petey? Know anything about
1: him? Petey, little Petey. No, I know that um oh no, I think he's Bolivian, that Lopez guy, isn't he? I don't think I'm familiar with Little Petey
0: actually. Well maybe Uh, Well he apparently murdered mm -hmm. over forty people in prison. Oh right, okay. So he began by murdering the gang that killed his girlfriend and then stabbing his father, who was in prison for killing his mother during a visit. Uh, he was a well, bit vindictive, yeah. Well, he was well. I'll read you what I got here. He was well liked because he was considered a sort of vigilante avenger, despite killing indiscriminately within prison. Uh, because of Brazil's odd sentencing laws, he could only serve a maximum of thirty years, and is currently a YouTube personality and ranch hand. <laughs> he only got 30, He killed over forty people in prisons. So that's all verified. These are prison murders. And he is out and about so he, and free. He So he
1: killed the gang that killed his girlfriend? Yes, the entire gang. Not the person, Not the all of, gang? Every, every single one, yeah. Who the fuck is this guy? <laughs>
0: there's a great film waiting to be made. Is now. he called
1: Little Petey because
0: he's diminutive? I don't know. I would assume, yeah. Or perhaps there was already a Petey in prison, and so the new guy becomes <laughs> It'll
1: be, Little there's big. The little cunt's the one you want to fucking watch out for. Yeah. yeah. Pity's a nice guy. Little pity. That's the one. Yeah. 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 Big one will bend you over. The little one will bend you over and rip your intestines out for your ass, it sounds like. <laughs> Fuck. Well, I'm, I know who, well, I'm, I'm watching devs and I know who I'm looking up on YouTube Like, as well. Apparently, he is an
0: active YouTuber. Yeah. <laughs> uh,
1: John Wayne Gacy. Oh, the clown. The lovable clown.
0: Only a little bit on him. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of interesting facts about John Wayne Gacy. I just thought this one was funny. Um, as much as funny serial killer trivia can go. Uh, he used to bury his victims, of course, underneath the family home. In the crawl space, yeah. And his wife, Carol, uh, used to complain about the smell. But she believed him uh, when he told her that the smell was actually mice. He kept saying that there were mice stuck on his feet. Yeah. He kept going under the house to figure out what the smell was, You know, ostensibly. Oh, I'll go and see what that smell is. They come up and say, There's a load of dead mice under there. There must be a cat that's leaving their dead prey underneath. And she believed him. Yeah, you know, I, mean, I mean, there's naivety in them. There's that, isn't there? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh,
0: Arthur Shawcross, know much about him?
1: I know Arthur Shawcross, yeah. He's dead now, isn't
0: he? Yeah, the, uh, the, the river killer. Yeah. I was serving uh, five years for arson burglary. He was released. This is the interesting thing to me. He was released after only 22 months because he saved a prison guard during a riot. Mm. Uh, He then went on, after he was released, to kill at least 14 people. And some of these murders included cannibalism. Yep. So he was let out for saving a prison guard's life and then 14 more people died, some of which were eaten. Wow, what a mistake that was.
1: Yeah, man. Oh, Jesus Christ.
0: Yeah, the mind boggles,
1: right? (laughs) When you mentioned this, I was actually reading up the other day because um, one guy I've come across before is um, Richard Cottingham. Yeah. I think they call him the uh, New York torso murderer, like just dis- got like butchered about five or six women, mostly in hotel rooms. But one of the women who he murdered, her daughter came to visit him in prison regularly. And she is now on record as saying that she has developed a fondness for him and considers him to be a surrogate father figure. We, you know, it's just when you, sometimes when you get into the, the tangents and peripheries of the worlds of these kind of people, you come across psyches that blow your fucking mind. Not even just the murderers themselves, people who form attachments to them, why they form attachments to them, how they come to consider. I mean, like do so you imagine that? So somebody murdered your mum and you go and visit the person in prison and you come to parentify them. Yeah, is that fucked up or is that fucked it's up? Some Wait, weird is it? form of Stockholm syndrome or something. I mean, I don't know. Sure God, there's a, God um, it's just—I mean, it's just, it's just uh, utterly disturbing. You yeah, <laughs> know, well, on that happy note, anyway, <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's time to end this week's show. Or at least the free one, as mm-hmm. usual. Off we go into premium territory. Uh, I'm getting sick of doing my shilling bit every week, but as usual, we don't do adverts. We don't do affiliate links. Um, If you enjoy our stuff, please do consider paying for the premium one because we do, well, it's pretty much the same content but with more bits and uh, with some fun film games as well. I'm going to do the like Stephen Coogan film Greed this week. Liam's got some great stuff queued up. We do um, So Bad It's Good and Things That Really Annoy Us in Films, basically. Mm. But it's pretty much a lot of the same. Maybe we go a little bit deeper. and Maybe we go a little bit further. So please do consider um, looking at our Patreon page. If not, we will catch you on the free one next week.
1: Anything to add, matey? As always, guys, cheers for listening. Really appreciate it. Hope you're all staying safe and haven't contracted anything nasty. And uh, yeah, just keep on rocking it.